Heyo, Kevin Cole here on Expected Points. No glasses today for anyone watching on the old YouTube. So sorry if it's freaking you out too much here. <laughs> Got a lot of uh, a lot a lot of sporting activities going on today. I actually did not give a lot of lead time to anyone who may happen to be tuning into this. So let me go ahead and send this out to the people. Um I'll just say, what should we say we're going to talk about today? We got schedule release. So I will talk about that only because it's interesting in implications for when some quarterbacks may be starting, where rookies, when um, some betting odds we're already getting on teams. So from a team strength perspective, I haven't perfectly quantified all that sort of stuff here, but we've got a couple of weeks now that we can look at. Oh, different betting odds to get some um, to get some ideas of team strength according to Vegas. And of course, we can get a little bit of an idea of how things may go down early, but not wanting to overfill based upon schedule how good we think teams are going to be or not. There's going to be a lot of that going on now where Certain teams have a you know a 99th percentile difficulty of schedule. Another team has a fifth percentile difficulty of schedule. And the reality is it just means one team is projected to play other teams that on average will win one more game this season. So it matters. It definitely matters. There's definitely a cumulative effect. Um, but it probably does not matter as much as the fundamentals of the teams. Uh, okay, let me just finish sending sending this out on the old Twitter. Uh, okay. So I will take question and answer here as I've done in the past, put Q and a in the comments. Let me just add that to the comments. Uh, let's say drop questions here. And then I will take those later after going through a little piece of research that I had this week and some of the early schedule release implications. So for those who did not see, I put something out, which is really a follow-on to a conversation that I had with Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer on Wednesday about front offices. And it went into what's called the principal agent problem. And the principal agent problem is a conflict of interest between those who own something and those who have been delegated authority to control and run something. So in the classic sense, it's the conflict of interest between an owner or stockholders, let's say, of a company and C-suite executives for that company who don't own nearly as much, like salary, what they're going to earn in salary and bonuses is more important to them than what is going on with the equity of the company. And they're going to want to hit short-term goals, short-term profitability goals would be much more important to executives than to ownership under those circumstances, and it creates a conflict of interest. So how do you resolve this conflict of interest? Uh, maybe I'll just keep going through this, this example here for uh, businesses, and then we can see how I present resolving some of these conflicts for NFL teams. But you try to align incentives. So you incentivize executives with stock awards, things that are going to align them with the stockholders. You're going to have incentives that relate to the stock price as opposed to the quarterly earnings. Now, you know, it's not perfect. Obviously, stock prices can be manipulated. They can be pushed up or down based upon short-term earnings, which are then extrapolated out into infinity, things like that. But generally, that's what you're trying to do is figure out a way to align those things in a number of Ways have been thought of business-wise in order to do so. For the NFL, not so much innovation in that regard. You have GMs and you have coaches because coaches have a great influence over decision-making. Uh, in some franchises, they're kind of the de facto GM. Even if, you know, like the, the, the putative GM for the 49ers is John Lynch, I think Kyle Shanahan's kind of running the show there a little bit more than others. And uh, that's the case in a few other different places. So the, the principal agent problem when it comes to the NFL is the principal being ownership. Also, I believe being fans, fans are not short-term invested in a team. Fans for large part are multi-year decades, lifelong passing it on to their kids and so on. They're the, 
kind of long-term stakeholders when it comes to that. And then the opposition, the agent here, the one who is in charge of directing this, this, this franchise, this thing that people are interested in, that people are attached to, that people have ownership and stake in, um, is are the coach and the GM. And they have misaligned incentives. The primary misaligned incentive is that for coaches, and especially for GMs, trying to keep their job. And trying to keep their job, especially for GMs, is hugely important because once you've been fired from one place as a GM, it's very difficult to get a job somewhere else. Somehow, of all people, Dave Gettleman was someone who saw that happen. But if you think about it, like Super Sports uh, CEO, Thomas Dimitrov, very, very long tenure with the Falcons. Will he get another GM job down the road? Probably not. It's probably just not going to happen. Um, coaches you see get second chances a little bit more often than you do for GMs. But for GMs, it's really a one-and-done type of situation most of the time. So you're really concentrated on holding on to that job. And because of that, the short term is extremely important. And in fact, when I looked at the historical data for what sort of time frames are really realistic, you can assume you can hold on to a job in the NFL. And it's easier to look at this for coaching data, but the coaching regime changes align pretty well with GMs. I mean, sometimes coaches don't survive. Sometimes GMs don't survive, but coaches do. But a lot of times they're being cycled in and out on the same schedule. We're really talking about three years, almost a maximum of three years. You know, some coaches and GMs are let go even earlier than that. But it's really three years are all you can realistically count on. I looked at all head coaches who have started since the year 2000, started their careers, and the only ones that have had longer than a three-year window with a team when they didn't have either a winning record or a playoff berth, one of those two things, there were only four coaches who made it to the fourth season. Only two of those coaches went eight and eight multiple times in the first three seasons and went seven and nine in their other season. So they were almost like a 500 team. So that's how they survived. Now, the two coaches who didn't even meet that bar, they both were fired midseason in their fourth season. So it's really if you don't hit like an eight and eight sort of record show progression moving forward in that third season, you're pretty much toast. And this season, we have a, a number of teams which can fall into that category to varying degrees. I mean, I think the Falcons and the Lions are two that I point to explicitly because of the fact that they're entering the third year. The Lions have the highest odds to win the NFC North. The Falcons have the second highest odds to win the NFC South. And the one area where this principal agent problem, the job preservation problem, really comes into play in my belief, is with the aversion for drafting quarterbacks. Because, number one, you're getting an unknown quantity at quarterback. So the floor is extremely low. And if that quarterback is a bust, even through no fault of the coach, you could be out the door. I mean, for instance, Steve Wilkes was fired after one year. Josh Rosen was so bad. And the team probably wasn't great outside of that. He probably didn't do a fantastic job outside of that, but still gone after one year. Many, many coaches that I looked at in the sample have been, they basically draft a quarterback, rookie year, disappointment through some fault of theirs, potentially, not necessarily, and they're gone. Jack Del Rio fired. Blaine Gabbert after Blaine Gabbert's rookie year. Pat Shermer. Well, this is actually some of these are during the year. Pat Shermer, back when he was with the Browns, fired Brandon Whedon. Dennis Allen, fired Derek Carr's rookie year, where he was not good. Jeff Fisher, fired Jared Goff's rookie year, also not good. Todd Bowles, fired Jay Gruden, fired for Dwayne Haskins' rookie year. Matt Nagy, fired Justin Fields' rookie year. Now, you can look at a lot of these guys and say, well, they all stink as head coaches. And, you know, Maybe that's true, but, you know, if a lot of guys don't get a second chance to be a head coach and we don't know who they'll end up being necessarily. Uh, but a lot of quarterbacks who end up having decent to great careers in some circumstances are just really, really bad as rookies. 
Uh, I looked at total expected points added for rookie seasons versus veteran seasons. I mean, there are some really, really bad numbers. Alex Smith, negative 95 EPA in his rookie season. Jared Goff, negative 80. Matthew Stafford, negative 65. Derek Carr, negative 61. Trevor Lawrence, negative 32. And that also coincided, of course, with Urban Meyer being fired. I mean, Urban Meyer was a mess. But, like, if Trevor Lawrence played like second-year Trevor Lawrence... Who knows? Maybe he could have uh, even survived all that mess there. Eli Manning, negative 30. Lamar Jackson, about negative 10 EPA. And Josh Allen, slightly negative in EPA. So even like guys who are putting up monster numbers, you know, Josh Allen putting up 200 expected points added now in a season, uh, starting off as a rookie, wasn't adding anything. And in fact, you know, just being at zero is bad for drop back passing, which is generally a positive uh, expected points added versus running the ball. So even if you have a successful quarterback, they can be bad. And then the coaches end up getting swept out here. So first year, a lot of quarterbacks are brought in with first year coaches because they know they have a bad year as a rookie. They can survive that. They won't be fired. And then there'll be benefits in the future. Even if you've already had one year, and I guess maybe would put like Josh McDaniel and uh, Ziegler over in Las Vegas is being part of this. Even one year, even going into your second season, if you draft a rookie quarterback, they're probably going to be bad that season or not great that season. Not at their full potential, certainly, that season. So you have a bad second year and you're trending in the wrong direction. All of a sudden, year three is right around the corner. You may not even make it there. So it's almost like first season, these GMs and new head coaches are motivated to go get a quarterback. And then after that, They really don't want to take one because of the unknown, because of the floor that's so low that will overwhelm everything else you've done on the roster if you don't get that pick right at quarterback. Um, I mean, another example would be the Browns who, you know, did not, they passed on Wentz and Goff. They went with Deshaun Kaiser the next year in 2017, a second round pick. We all knew that was like a low floor potential pick. We all knew that was a high-risk, high-reward type of pick. He was so bad that they don't win a game, and Sashi Brown is gone. Hugh Jackson's gone somewhat the next year. It was a pick that was being praised during the offseason. The results come, and boom, heads start to roll. So I think teams know this a lot. GMs know this a lot, and that becomes a big problem with not being willing to take someone like a Will Levis Despite the fact that Lamar Jackson was the 32nd pick overall and he's ended up being so good. Jalen Hurts was a second round pick and he ended up being so good. Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, both of them had multiple quarterbacks and multiple non-quarterbacks going before them in the draft. Patrick Mahomes had Mitchell Trubisky going before him in the draft and multiple non-quarterbacks in the draft. Deshaun Watson was in that same draft even later. Lots of guys who had flaws, lots of guys that you could not be confident would come in and improve your team immediately when you think you need it as a GM and a head coach end up being the best picks that you could possibly make for the longer term success of the franchise for ownership and for fans. Quarterback aversion. A quarterback pick that you make in the middle of the first round can have a massive impact, negative impact on the team. Even if, like the Titans, for instance, their last three first-round picks, Traylon Burks, Isaiah Wilson, Caleb Farley, haven't done much at all. Wilson only played one NFL game before he was out. Farley injured both seasons. Traylon Burks had an okay year, but again, injured a lot. We don't talk about those a lot. But if this Will Levis pick doesn't hit, we'll be talking about it a ton, even though it was a second-year pick because of the impact it'll have on the franchise. So how do we correct this? Again, I point to the Lions and the Falcons being teams that were basically out on quarterbacks because they're entering the third year and had these expectations. So how do we how do we correct this? Well, you got to like align the incentives. So my suggestions were first, you got to have kind of knowledge that quarterback picks sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. You have to look at the process behind it. You have to be able to judge the success of the team outside of quarterback play that rookie year. How's the defense performing? How's the running game performing? How's the blocking performing? 
whatever independent measures we can try to derive outside of quarterback, how are we looking there, knowing that the quarterback is such a roll of the dice? Um, another thing I think they could do is even add years of guarantee or additional years to the contract with some sort of assurances for coaches and GMs if they do draft a quarterback. If they don't want to draft one because they think this poor rookie season is going to have me out the door, so I'm not going to risk, I'm not going to take any risk to potentially get that reward and that upside, well, eliminate some of that risk for them. And if you say, well, then you're keeping a bad coach around who couldn't develop the quarterback, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you think they're a bad coach, then they should be fired and just get rid of them anyway. Be even more proactive to get rid of them then. Because then a new coach and a new GM coming in will be willing to go ahead and draft a quarterback in that first year. Either give them the assurances that they'll last longer if you believe in them. Don't just be ho-hum, uh, I'm not sure I like them, I'm not sure I don't like them, I'm not sure I want to fire them, so on and so forth. Either give them more assurances to stay longer or bring in someone else who has, who will have more assurances that they'll be able to stay along longer so they can look rationally and have a sober look at the quarterbacks available, who probably should be taken earlier than what we've seen in the past. And that's really everything that the article is about, again, Dig into that. I'll have some more stuff going on as we get into the season. All right. Let's talk uh, schedule release for a second. So the schedule release is out. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of annoying, honestly. Uh, I'm not going to lie. On Twitter, a lot of this stuff. My favorite part of the week was the international schedules being released because then we got a tweet from every beat writer covering a team that did have an international game saying, hey, international game, I'm going to, you know, Berlin or whatever. And then we had every single beat writer for a team that did not have an international game also sending out a tweet saying, no international game this year <laughs> for the team. And it's like, okay, uh, man, the NFL, you're really conquering this like 12 month long cycle of being on the front of everyone's mind. But then last night, we got the actual schedule release. Why is the schedule release important? I don't care about prime time. I don't care about a lot of this stuff. We can hash that out all season long. Why is it important? Uh, number one, we start to get some good old, maybe wisdom of crowds, but more like wisdom of betting markets, which is even better than wisdom of crowds, information on team strength. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen a website. I'm going to look it up here. It's um, called Unpredictable, And I don't think they're doing it already for this year. Probably not. I'm looking at it here. And it looks like the team strength ratings that they have are based upon last year's stuff. Yeah, it says as of January 8th, 2023. But anyway, what they do is. They have they look at the, the two weeks out. So the, the first week and second week of NFL lines and they're able to, to mix it together to say, okay, team X is favored over team Y by three points. Team Y is playing team Z the next week and they're favored by two points. So then team X is probably five points better than team Z. And then team Z is playing team blah, blah, blah. blah. Anyway, you can work it all around. It's kind of like a matrix that you're building of all these different, um, all these different point spreads you put in an assumption for quarterback if need be for injuries and things like that not as big of a deal for the first week it's more like well it could be somewhat of a big deal for the first week if you're assuming who's going to start or not for rookies and then you're also throwing in home field advantage and through that matrix you're able to derive power rankings for these teams and basically how much a team is favored on a neutral field against an average team, how much you think you would, they would be favored. And then you can build some, some rankings based upon that. Okay. Um, spoiler alert. I have not done the work on that yet. Um, I'm also going to be doing a lot of scenario analysis. Now that we have the schedule, haven't done that either. I have made some blind bets though. If you want to know, I'll talk about those in a second, but if we, you know, we can do this exercise a little bit um, of a more, you know, ad hoc basis, 
um, not exactly looking into it and have to make everything perfectly calculated out, but try to figure it out on the basis of, you know, what's what's most interesting. So let me bring up uh, our let's bring up DraftKings so I can get both of the weeks here for different teams. So I believe we have two weeks of data on this. Let's look. So for the Lions, they're six and a half point underdogs at Kansas City week one. Oh, yeah. And then week two, they are two point favorites at the Seahawks. Oh, yeah, we actually have three weeks of data here. So then there are five-point favorites at the Falcons. Are we going all the way out? We got a far here. We got four weeks here. And then they are one-and-a-half-point favorites at the Packers. And that starts to give you an idea. Well, Panthers, Bucks, we got everything in here. Um, all right, it starts to get a little sparse once we get down into mid-October. But we got a lot of data here that we can start to make some assumptions for how good these teams are. And... I do think it's interesting, the Lions being mashed up with the Chiefs in this first game of the season. Um, I don't know if restore the roar crowd is going to be big here. Uh, I think it opened at seven. Now it's down to six and a half for the Chiefs. Kind of interesting. Let's just start to, to peel through some of these. Um, the Chiefs are at home. So I don't know. I think a couple points there. Maybe a four and a half point type of difference, which, hmm, I don't know. Maybe I'm not buying the Lions quite as much as some others. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and look here at my power rankings to end the season and see how some of this compares. I think that might be a good way to do this. So for the power rankings to end the season, I had the Chiefs, about six points better than anyone on a neutral field, and the Lions about a point better. So five-point difference. So according to this, with an adjustment for home field, it's definitely tighter than five points. So interesting. I think the Lions may have gone better relative to the Chiefs, at least according to my numbers. The Ravens, nine-point favorites over the Texans. I guess we'll have to see what the Texans are doing as far as quarterback is concerned there. Uh, the Bengals, two-and-a-half-point favorites at the Browns. That's an interesting one to me. I think the Browns may be sneaky values this year based upon some undue pessimism on Deshaun Watson. I'll talk about that soon. Um, Vikings, seven-point favorites at the Bucks. The Jags, three-and-a-half-point favorites at the Colts. That's interesting because we don't really know what's going to be going on with Anthony Richardson with that one or whether Gardner Minshew is going to start on that one. Uh, Commanders, Cardinals. That's the... Cardinals are going to be in a rough spot here without Kyler Murray. Commanders, five and a half point favorites. The 49ers at the Steelers. Now, this must have, at least I think, them being three-point favorites, although they do get over the three for the Steelers. This seems like it has some sort of quarterback uncertainty built into it here for the 49ers only being three-point favorites. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but it seems that way for me. Falcons-Panthers. I'm interested in this one because I kind of think the Panthers are pretty close to the Falcons as far as team strength this year. And the fact that the Falcons are two and a half point favorites over the Panthers week one, which would be kind of the worst week for Bryce Young. Either he's not going to play or he's going to be the least experienced that he'll be all season long. I think is interesting. Markets are much, much tighter on Falcons and Panthers than a lot of people's minds. A lot of people think the Falcons are this team that's ascending going into this year. And if Desmond Ritter plays okay, you know, they got a really good chance of winning the division and the Panthers are somewhat of an afterthought. They're actually pretty close, pretty close. Uh, Titans Saints, Saints three and a half point favorites at home to the Titans. So they're over the three. That's a pretty substantial difference. The Titans are looking pretty rough this year. In fact, let's look at the Titans. I think the Titans are an interesting one to really get a, get a grip on. Like what sort of team do we have this year? Figuring out what to do with Levis and others. So the Titans start the season three and a half point dogs at the Saints. Um, three and a half point dogs at home to the Chargers. Four and a half point dogs at the Browns. Four and a half point dogs at home versus the Bengals. And then one point dogs uh, at Indianapolis. So that's interesting. That's pretty close. And this is so far out in the future that, you know, we're not getting a ton of signal here. And then the Ravens, negative five and a half. 
So they're they're five and a half point dogs at home versus the Ravens. And why I think this is interesting in particular when it comes to the Titans is like Will Levis watch. When are we going to get Will Levis? If you look at these six games that I talked about here for the Titans to start the season, uh, dogs in every single game. Five out of the six games, I believe, if I remember correctly, more than three points, three points or more. So like substantial dogs in all these different games. Uh, They have a bye week seven. So after this Ravens game in week six, they have a bye the next week. Then the second half of their schedule, you got the Titans in, I mean, you got the Texans in there twice. You got um, the Bucks in there. You got some other easier teams down the stretch. This seems like the transition point for Levis. And the important thing I think to remember when we're talking about um, like when these quarterback transitions are going to happen, when these quarterback transitions are going to happen to rookies this year is after week one, after the decision has been made, who's going to start week one, like how good the starter is, how good the rookie is, all those sorts of things doesn't matter that much outside of win-loss record. That's going to be the thing driving it the most. You know, like Alex Smith was a, was a good quarterback and had a fantastic year uh, in 2017 during Patrick Mahomes' rookie year. But there's plenty of stories about Mahomes looking great in – Uh, in his work on the scout team and other things. Uh, But the reason that Mahomes didn't play that year as a rookie, even though I advocated for him to play, (laughs) I advocated for him to play after week 14, when they lost to the Raiders and they were seven and six, I was like, let's put Mahomes in and see what he can do. Um, People actually, actually got ratioed on that. People were so upset about the idea of putting in Patrick Mahomes when Alex Smith was playing well, but the reason he didn't play was mostly because the Chiefs were just playing well. They started the season 5-0. and They were 6-3 and nine weeks into the season before hitting their bye week. Um, they got down to 6-6 six and six after losing to the Jets in week 13, but then 7-6, and 8-6, and 9-6, and 10-6. And, six. and um, well, actually 9-6 and six would have been the last game for Smith and then Mahomes played the the meaningless last game of the season for 10 to six, but they were basically like a playoff team the entire year, never below 500 Again, starting five and zero to start the season, really, really strong start. That was the main reason that they never really turned to Mahomes. Not that Mahomes didn't look good enough. Not that Smith was, you know, they knew his ceiling was so high or something like that. It was really just because that they're performing that well. So that's going to be the important thing, I think, for Levis in particular, when he's going to start on the Titans. And the Titans being significant underdogs in five out of the first six games, underdogs in all six of those games, probably looking at a two and four start to the season, maybe one and five, maybe three and three maybe a very, very outside chance at four and two before going into their buy. I think that's going to be when Levis comes in. And that's information we can use from the schedule, seeing that they have such a more difficult schedule for the Titans at the beginning of the season that we may see Levis a lot earlier, even than that. These first few games they have, they're all at least three point favorites. They could start off 0 and three and we'll see Levis immediately. That can happen. And when it comes to, you know, what the Titans are going to do, I do think the earlier they get him in there, the better. Um, he's not going to have the greatest chance of success. Just today, Mike Clay put out his offensive line rankings for NFL teams. He had the Titans dead last. Um, not great for evaluating Will Levis, but I'm not one of these people who says if a quarterback has bad surroundings, like maybe they were said for fields in the past, that you just can't evaluate them. You just take it all and throw it in the garbage and say, let's give them a second year to figure out if they're good or not. No. I mean, it's context. You adjust. But generally, like, you have to show something 
as a rookie, or you're not going to be that good, or at least your ceiling will be limited going forward. So I do think the Titans, if they can survive, and it looks like they have a new GM, so he can survive. Um, Mike Vrabel is probably running the organization more than anyone else now after winning that power struggle, if there was one, with John Robinson last year. I think he's going to survive no matter what happens. Um, Keeping Tannehill around, you probably need to restructure his contract rather than have him play on a $36 million a year deal because once week one ticks by, all veteran contracts become fully guaranteed for the year. So I don't know if you want that. Figure out some way to restructure him or cut him because you can cut him. There's no guaranteed salary left. Uh, Use that as your leverage to restructure him. But don't trade him now, which is the lowest point you can trade. Right now is the lowest point you can trade a player. Because every team is saying to themselves, we just went through free agency. We just went through the draft. Our depth chart looks as good as it's ever going to look. You get into the training camp, people start to get injured. It starts to look a little bit worse. You get into the season, the players you thought were going to be good underperform. The players you were hoping to be good aren't good. More players get injured. In-season trades, and we've seen this going back to Amari Cooper for a first-round pick, which looked really bad at the time going over from the Raiders to the Cowboys. Didn't look as bad now. Uh, Mo Sanu, remember him getting traded for a second-round pick to the Patriots. Uh, Sam Bradford, not in season, but before the season getting traded for a first round pick from the Eagles to the Vikings because of an injury. Uh, even Christian McCaffrey, it's a pretty good haul that the Panthers got for him mid-season last year. So I would say keep Henry around, keep Tannehill around, figure out a way for Tannehill's contract to make it palatable to potentially trade that a few weeks into the season. Teams don't like the trade for quarterbacks mid-season, but like a team like the Jets last year, If you had Tannehill on a decent contract, I think you could have fired him off to the Jets at some point early in the season. So test the market there and then make the move to Levis. And even though he has a horrible situation, if he shows anything and you don't end up having a top one, two, three pick in the NFL draft, great. You got a potential guy that you drafted in the early second round going forward. Um, If he doesn't show anything and he has this awful offensive line, and you have, you know, a fair, a decent schedule, and he doesn't really live up there, the floor is going to be very, very, very low. And in a year with some great quarterback prospects, hell, you might just go straight into a Caleb Williams next season. So Titan fans could be a little rough this year, especially beginning of the season. Um, but I do think if you plan in advance now, for the best possible scenario for then moving into 2024. A lot of stuff you can do here. Again, don't have that principal agent problem where you're so worried about winning games this year, in particular with Vrabel having that job security. Okay, let's talk about some other things with the schedule here. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, I mentioned this briefly with the Browns. I mean, you can't bet... Okay. Deshaun Watson, I'll just reiterate this, that I you know, I think he's guilty of sin. I've talked about it a bunch in this program that I wouldn't have traded for him, but, you know, whatever, he's there. We can't ignore the fact that he's there. Um, he's probably extremely undervalued from an objective standpoint when it comes to, like, MVP odds, but, you know, that's going to be a tough... That's going to be a tough uh, narrative, uh, a tough, like, voting award to get through when we're talking about MVP odds. Um, Because if you look at them right now, if you look at uh, Watson versus some others, I mean, Watson is down there at, you can get him at 40 to one versus, you know, Justin Fields at 25 to one. What the hell is going on with Justin Fields, by the way, and these MVP odds, Like he's basically in line with Dak Prescott to a, on some places, you know, pretty close to Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I buy that one. Um, but I don't see a ton of value this year. I mean, basically every year before this, I just bet on Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> it, it finally paid off um, this last year. 
because he seems to be always undervalued. I mean, at 700, 650, eh, it's about a coin flip sort of thing as to whether or not he has value right now. Um, but just a lot of different candidates here. Burrow, I can't do it. Allen, can't really do it. Hurts, maybe. I mean, the NFC is going to be so cakewalky. He's still going to have all that talent there. 12 to 1 is a maybe. Herbert, 15 to 1 at Caesars, at least. So that's a definite maybe. I would rather, I prefer Herbert 15 to 1 than Lawrence at 16 to 1, who's next. I'm still not quite there for Lawrence. Uh, Rogers, yeah, I think the ship has probably sailed for him. And as far as the long shots, I mean, there's not a lot here. I mean, maybe Russell Wilson, 45 to 1. And I know it's disgusting. <laughs> Right. But, but when, first of all, what's up with this Trey Lance picture? It's just a picture of his mouth. Um, if, if you're, if your MVP odds, okay, if you just got traded for like multiple first round picks and have one of the most expensive quarterback contracts in the NFL, and you have Sean Payton, who's now coming in as your head coach, and you have a number of decent receivers, and you have an okay offensive line and everything else, and you look up, and your MVP odds are in aggregate lower than Jared Goff. I mean, worse, I should say. Longer odds than Jared Goff. Longer odds than Geno Smith. Longer odds than Trey Lance, who's probably not even going to start. So that's <laughs> that's that's a pretty bad one. Um, about equal to Jordan Love. Your MVP odds are about equal to Jordan Love. You're a Hall of Famer. Um, it's definitely a a plug your nose sort of situation. Like you got to plug your nose. I realize Russell Wilson's never had an MVP vote, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but he was a legit contender in, when was it? 2015 or 2016? I can't remember which one it was. It was 2016. And he was pretty good. He was extremely good the first half of the season for 2020 before things had, had kind of fallen apart. But yeah, I mean, that that's insane to me. 45 to one. I'll take Russell Wilson at 45 to one. Um, I'll probably make that bet shortly after this podcast here. Anything else here? I mean, I would say Stafford at 60 to one is not bad, but Stafford's going to be a really interesting test case this year on the whole offensive line thing. That's like the meme that Ben Baldwin, who will be on the pod next week to discuss front offices, front office rankings. Um, it's a little bit of a meme that he had of him, Stafford and Goff when it came to their performance and how well the offensive line was playing. So Stafford was really, really great a couple of years ago because the offensive line played great. The offensive line stunk last year and his performance went in the toilet this year. They're projected to be really, really bad on the offensive line. So maybe it's not a great bet, but I mean, hell, if he has the same odds as Kyler Murray, he's not even going to play maybe the first half of the season. I don't know. It's something. Uh, Sam Darnold, Jim Garoppolo, 101. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I would take that. I probably can't take that. He probably has no chance of winning. I can't do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't do that one. But I don't know. Well, let's stick with reasonable stuff here. Russell Wilson, 45 to 1. Book it. Uh, I'm in. I'm in on that one. The other bet that I've made so far, and again, this is I'm doing my simulations. They're not done yet. Apologies. But kind of a blind bet that I made here. And this is the Browns thing that I mentioned. I think they're undervalued, but you can't really do Watson MVP because no one's going to vote for him for MVP. But be the reason they're undervalued is because people think Watson is bad or something now, even though he was one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And there's a reason there was such a sweepstakes for him after the 2020 season. Let's look at these AFC championship odds. Now, the AFC is going to be a gauntlet. You got the Chiefs, you got the Bills, you got the Bengals, you got Rodgers and the Jets, you got Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, you got Trevor Lawrence and the Jags, you know, Justin Herbert and the Chargers, Tua playing well with the Dolphins. It's a lot of teams, right? But it points better, and I've already made this bet here, 22 to 1 for the Browns. Um, around the same odds as we're looking at the Broncos. Broncos slightly, slightly longer odds you can get here. But then after that, it's the Raiders, the Steelers, the Patriots, the Titans. I mean, these teams have no chance. Um, the Browns, I mean, they've been building and rebuilding this team. they got defensive player of the year type of candidate on defense. They have other pieces that they've built around on defense. Uh, Mike Clay's 
offensive line rankings had the Browns second in the NFL to the Eagles. They have Amari Cooper still there. Um, Deshaun Watson returns to form. I don't know, man. Like, is there that big of a difference? Again, when you're looking at the the point spread in some of these games, it's less than three points, Bengals at Browns. So you add in the home field. Yeah, you give them a couple more points. The Ravens. Yeah, I mean, like, is there that big of a difference between the Ravens and the Bengals and the Browns? Should the Bengals really be five to one to win the AFC championship where the Browns are 22 to one? I don't know. I mean, this may be, they restructured Watson's contract this season to bring that cap number down. There's a lot of reasons to argue that this year with the full off season, this is the best the Browns team can potentially be. Miles Garrett still in his prime. Deshaun Watson, obviously still in his prime. Um, Nick Chubb still in his prime. The offensive line as good as it is. They need things to come, come together defensively, but I don't know. I just feel like if Watson had had any sort of reasonable performance last year and he had some really, really bad weather games, they kind of were just discombobulated at the end of that season. If he had any sort of reasonable performance last year, they would be right in the Ravens sort of range of maybe 12 to one as opposed to 22 to one. So that's the one team that that stands out to me, at least uh, above anyone else. And then lastly, if we're going to go to actually, you know what? I think that's where I'm going to stick on the different betting sort of stuff, because that's all I've done so far. And I'm going to write up some more stuff next week. Once I do, once I do my simulations. All right, let's get to the uh, Q and a, if we have any here and maybe we'll get out of here a little bit early ish since let's face it. There's not a lot of NFL news going on this week. Um, okay. Let's see. Do we have any good stuff here? says, can you please explain to me the importance analytically of the schedules? Is there any as a fan? I don't find any value in the schedule unless you actually plan on going to multiple games a year. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, the only real value is what I talked about is when there can be some narrative arcs that will actually have effect on benching a quarterback. So I think it matters. Like, I think it matters that the Titans schedule is so difficult to start this to start the year. Um, much, much more difficult than it is after their bye week. So that matters in trying to figure that out. And then that matters when we're talking about props, seasonal props for Levis, if we get them, maybe even rookie of the year props on Levis. Um, Do we have rookie of the year? Let's look at offensive rookie of the year. I mean, I think it's probably burning money betting on Levis on this Titans team anyway. Um, odds 2023. Okay, it looks like right now Levis is 25 to 1, the same as Jalen Hyatt. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's pretty good. 25 to 1. Um, I mean, it's still like these long, long shots. It's less, it's, it's, he has longer odds than Quentin Johnson and uh, Zach uh, Charbonnet here, the running back. He has longer odds than Hendon Hooker. How could that possibly be true? Hendon Hooker's not even going to be playing. He's injured. Zay Flowers, Addison, all these guys are higher. Um, hmm, I don't know. I might think about that. Will Levis, 25 to 1. I'm going to have to shop, though. i got to shop a lot on that because I'm not interested in anyone else after that. But I do think it's interesting. Bryce Young, plus 475. So, you know, almost 5 to 1. CJ Stroud, 7 to 1. It's probably still burning money to say Levis at 25 to one, but that could be interesting. So that's, that's a little bit of a thing to think about when it comes to analytical stuff with the schedule. Uh, Doug analytics, frequent question asker. Appreciate it, Doug. Uh, New York giants. Have you done any work on rest or travel time versus win probability? I believe I remember Timo Risque of PFF shout out to Timo finding that rest didn't make a difference unless it was after a buy. The problem with this and I have done some work on this. The problem with this, like a lot of different things, is how much do we weigh the historical data that may be telling us something that doesn't apply anymore? So the, the home field advantage has been whittled down over a number of years significantly recently because of the better understanding of rest, 
uh, travel accommodations, scheduling, have a routine and a schedule when we're talking about traveling from one place to another. So, yeah, I don't think rest makes a big difference. And even the bi-week rest, I'm not sure rest is really helping that much after the bi-week. I mean, it's probably helping to a degree, but what may be the bigger thing after a bye week is the additional time you have to prepare for the next opponent. These coaches are working 20-hour days every week getting ready. When you have two weeks to get ready for someone as opposed to a week to get ready for someone, it makes a massive um, difference. So can you separate do you know that's rest or do you know or is that preparation i mean i'm willing to think it's more preparation than it is even rest when it comes to these teams unless it's a specific player you can point to coming back from an injury that couldn't have come back from an injury if it was only one week i think generally it's preparation um and you're going to spend two weeks preparing for that next team you're not going to spend like a week and a half for the next team and then push another half a week for the team after that. No, you pretty much just, it's pretty much the next team, next team up, next team up, next team up. So two weeks for the next team does make a difference. So I do think that's part of it. Travel. It used to be something that made a bigger difference. It used to actually be a thing like the early games on the East coast for West coast teams that would travel. So it'd be, they'd be playing at the equivalent of 10 AM their own time. Not as much of a thing anymore. Teams are smarter about travel. Teams are even staying overnight sometimes or staying through the week, I should say, on the East Coast if they have to make double trips. And teams also become accustomed to it. I think you may have seen when they they put it together all of the mileage and you saw the Seahawks had the most mileage. Well, they kind of always have the most mileage. West Coast teams always have more mileage because they're traveling more often to the East Coast than vice versa. And the Seahawks in particular are kind of isolated by themselves in the Northwest without, you know, a Portland team or no teams in Montana and other stuff out in that sort of area. So they're always going to have the most travel and they really kind of get used to it, but they also have a good home field advantage um, when other teams come traveling in. Uh, What else we got here? Timing of, okay. Another question here. Timing of games being different, the expiration of double headers and Monday night football from a timing perspective, viewership wise, but also player empowerment, eating regiments, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know. I just know that you put it on TV and people will watch it. And clearly, if you look at the schedules, whether it's East Coast just getting punished when it comes to the NBA schedule right now in the playoffs with these 10 o'clock tips, people are much more likely to stay up and watch if they're truly engaged than they are to like leave work early or whatever, leave school early or whatever they need to do to start watching. So it's a money-making venture for everyone there even if you think it's ridiculously late and you're not going to be able to stay up for it um am i crazy or is the vikings having the worst odds to win the nfc north crazy luck regression or not do they have the worst odds i thought the packers let me see uh nfc north odds i do think that they're they're undervalued um make sure pull this up okay i just got a bad page here um Hold on. Getting some bad information here. DraftKings, bring them up and we'll try and figure it out. Yeah, last time I saw the Packers were still the worst um, as far as the the odds are concerned. Um, Sorry, it's taking a little bit longer than I thought I was going to. Okay, division winner. NFC North. No, I mean, at least the DraftKings, I've seen different in different places. The Lions plus 110, the Vikings 350, Bears 350. I mean, that seems insane to me that the Bears are tied with the Vikings. They do have a lot easier schedule. The Vikings have that first place schedule, which hurts them a bit here. And then the Packers plus 500. So, yeah, I think the Vikings might be a little bit underrated. Um, Oh, the Packers jumped them on FanDuel. I guess I haven't looked on FanDuel. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of insane. Um, I'm not a big... I'm not a big uh, Jordan Love believer. You never know what can happen, though. I mean, you never know what can happen. Uh, anything else here? I like Cousins as MVP. I just don't think that's, like, ever going to happen, no matter what he does. You know, they're definitely not going to have, like, that was almost the best possible outcome. And I do, I just think Justin Jefferson probably hurts him too much. Sometimes that doesn't matter, like, when you have a Randy Moss, Tom Brady season together. Like, Tom Brady has enough cachet where Randy Moss is not going to take away from him. 
when they break all different kinds of records. But in some ways you could say, um, in some ways you could say maybe Justin Jefferson <laughs> has like some sort of path of getting there to the MVP. If everyone has a meh year and he has like 2000 yards or, or whatever else he'll need there. I, I don't know. I just don't see there. Um, what's the thing here? Jordan Love isn't a Jordan Love believer either. Yeah, no, I agree with that point. That's my whole <laughs> bet against himself with that contract, which is kind of funny. All right, guys, abbreviated here. Appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, if you have any more questions that you want to ask me, go ahead. You can email me if you want at the Unexpected Points email address. It's unexpectedpts altogether at gmail.com. Of course, follow me on Twitter just at Kevin Cole, triple underscore, the dreaded triple underscore there. Send me any questions, concerns, any ideas that you want me to explore on the website. Um, if you want to also go to Substack and you can leave comments on individual posts, you want to leave a comment on the post saying a Q&A or something else that you want me to explore that you didn't have time to tune in, uh, go ahead and do so. Uh, otherwise, I'll find some other topics to ramble to you guys next week and during the week, I don't know if it's Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm going to talk to Ben Baldwin. We're going to do our top and bottom front offices. So I got to figure out how I'm going to structure that, whether I want people yelling at us at the beginning or waiting till the end to yell at us when, you know, we have the Saints and the 49ers and whoever else that I'm going to put low, at least going <laughs> to the Jets and others that I'm going to have low on there that, that people will, you know, people have their notepads out and they'll be taking our names down for when, for when teams do well this year. Uh, otherwise, thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. I appreciate so much the love on Substack and here, and I'll be talking to you guys next week.